Good morning. Welcome to Forest Hill Church, one church, four campuses, and I have something very exciting to announce to you, but you got to wait till next week. Yeah, it makes you want to come back, doesn't it? At least I hope so a little bit. There really is something great going on with our campus expansion, but I can't tell you till next week. Uh, so I'm looking forward to doing so. We have campuses in Fort Mill, Ballantyne, Waxhaw here at South Park, and hopefully another one very, very soon. Uh, we wanted to update you on our pledge campaign, the So That campaign, $8 million goal to build a permanent campus in Waxhaw and also one on the South Boulevard corridor. Um, just want to let you know that every week we increased by about 200,000. Uh, four weeks ago, we were at 7.4, 7.6. This week we are at $7.8 million. We're right there on the doorstep of the goal. And uh, we... Just if you haven't given, we'd love to have you be a part of that and to break through that barrier. Here's the deal. I promise you I won't mention it again until we're at 8 million, okay? That, that's what we'll do because I think we're right on the doorstep. We will make that goal, and you've been so generous. Thank you so much in a two-year campaign. And if we'd done a three-year campaign, it'd be $12 million. But we did two on purpose because we didn't want to overburden you, and also we thought that's only all that we needed. So anyway, keep praying, and we're looking forward to seeing what God may do in this very, very wonderful way. Okay. My wife says that in preaching, I often go where angels fear to tread, and I'm going to do so over the next several weeks. Uh, the heart of the gospel is an understanding of the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, one God in three persons. It is the most complex and difficult doctrine to understand, but when you do understand it, you understand the gospel. And I would suggest to you that the Trinity is essential in understanding the cradle, in understanding Christmas. So, without further ado, buckle your seatbelts, open your Bibles, your cell phones, your iPads, whatever, and let's get at it. Let's try to understand the doctrine of the Trinity during this Christmas season, which I hope will inflame your hearts even more to love the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Let's begin by asking some questions about the Trinity. Here are the off, most often asked questions. First of all, what is the Trinity? It comes from the Latin word trinitas, which means threeness. Uh, it was formed by the early church father named Tertullian in the second century. The term Trinity is not in the Bible. But in the understanding of the term, one God and three persons, it is in the Bible. Uh, we just got through with a series on the challenge, especially of Islam persecuting Christians throughout the world. When Islam looks at the doctrine of the Trinity, Trinity here is the criticism. You Christians worship three gods. Nothing could be farther from the truth. We worship one God as the Jews do. We worship one God as the Muslims do. But the difference is we believe we worship one God in three persons. That's what the Trinity is. One God in three persons. Again, the term Trinity is not in the Bible, but biblically it is, which leads to the next question. Is it biblical? The short answer is absolutely. And not only is it biblical, it was reaffirmed in the two major church councils in the early days to try to make sure that heresies that were arising against the right teaching of the Christian gospel were refuted. Heresies rise up because people don't like 
what's taught in the scripture. And one of the heresies was that Jesus wasn't really divine. He was just a man. Another heresy is that he wasn't a man. He was just a ghost. And the church had to come against these heresies and teach what was right. One of the councils which did so is called the Council of Nicaea. In 325 AD, a group of committed church fathers coming together to define exactly what Christians believe. And in the Council of Nicaea, the church said Jesus was fully God and fully human at the same time. A mystery, but clearly taught in the scripture. And then about 100 years later, there was another council called the Council of Athanasius. And the Athanasius Creed was formed in the 5th century based largely on the great theologian Augustine, who may be the greatest theologian the church has ever had. And in the Athanasian Creed, there is a clear statement of the Trinity being one God in three persons. Now, this idea, again, came thoroughly from the early church fathers who came close to the apostles' writings, what was written in the Bible, understanding that that's what the Scripture taught. Let's look at some of the key verses that talk about this understanding of the Trinity. Genesis 1, 26, in creation, when God created the world, good, perfect, in every possible way, look at this verse. Read it with me, in fact. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So in creation, this term for God is Elohim. It's in the plural. It's God's. So in the very earliest manuscripts, in the very early interpretation of the scripture, you have an understanding of God in plurality. Let us make man in our own image. Then in Genesis 18, verses 1 and 2, you have Abraham and Sarah. Abraham having been promised from God that he would be given a child, a son, through whom all the nations would be blessed. But that promise had been a couple of decades in the waiting and still hadn't come true. And he and Sarah, I'm sure like all of us do when we sense a promise from God that hasn't come true, we get discouraged. He got discouraged. And then it tells us in Genesis 18, 1 and 2, let me just ask you to write down the verses and look for, as, uh, for, at them yourselves. Three men approach Abraham and they encourage him. They say the promise of the child will be yours. You will have a son. And then interestingly, Abraham calls the three the Lord, singular. The Lord, singular, in three men telling him the truth is you will have a son. And then later the three talking among themselves call themselves the Lord, singular. I would also suggest you look at Jesus' baptism in Mark, the first chapter, verses 9 through 11. By the way, you need to be baptized. If you believe in Jesus, you need a public declaration of driving your uh, faith into the ground and letting everyone see that you believe that Jesus is Lord. Jesus was baptized, not because he needed it, he was sinless, but because he was giving us an example that we needed it. And in his baptism, we read these words. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the what? The spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So you see, Jesus went under the water, the Spirit of God came upon him, and the Father said, you are my son. There it is. 
one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Probably the most profound place, though, we see the Trinity, not mentioned by name, but mentioned in definition, is in Matthew, the 28th chapter, verse 19. Jesus' last words before he ascended into heaven, he said to all of us and his disciples then, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, now read it with me, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice, name is singular. In the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And throughout the rest of the Bible, in the Pauline and the Johannine epistles, that simply means the letters written by Paul and John, the concept of the Trinity is everywhere. Write down Romans, the eighth chapter, perhaps my favorite chapter in all the Bible. And you this week go and do the study. Look at the number of times it talks about God who revealed his son and gave us the Holy Spirit. One God and three persons. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 17. Keep that in mind. I'm going to come back to it at the end of the message and show you in Paul's terminology how he taught the concept of one God in three persons. The next question, is it humanly understandable? The short answer is no. It's not humanly understandable. But I love this quote. Someone once said, Deny the Trinity and you'll lose your soul. Try to explain it and you'll lose your mind. It's true. The Trinity is the essence of the gospel so your soul will be saved. But to try to understand it is beyond human comprehension. Again, the Athanasian Creed in the 5th century, which defined the one God in three persons finally for the church, said this. The Father is incomprehensible. The Son is incomprehensible. The Holy Spirit is incomprehensible. But I'd like to invite you all, as you approach this Christmas season especially, to reclaim mystery in your faith. The whole idea of trying to figure out everything in the faith is the result of the enlightenment which engulfed America in the 18th century and lasted until a few years ago. We've got to understand everything in perfect detail in order to believe it. But faith demands mystery. Faith demands things we just don't understand. Why? That allows God to be God and allows us not to be God. We've got to depend upon God to be the one on whom we depend. Not our own human reasoning. And folks, just because I don't understand something doesn't mean I shouldn't practice it. I don't understand electricity. That does not prevent me from turning on the lights in the morning. I don't understand how my car works. Don't have a clue. But that doesn't prevent me from putting the key in the ignition. Just because I don't understand something doesn't mean I don't practice it. I don't understand the Trinity, but I believe it's biblical and it's true. If I stood at the bottom of a cliff and it is scaling upward and I know I can't climb it, there are clouds shrouding it at the summit... I know I can touch it. I might even be able to put a foot on it and climb maybe just a couple of feet. But I know I can't scale it. And I don't know what the summit looks like because of the clouds. But that does not prevent me from admiring the majesty of the beauty of that cliff. 
Just because I can't, can only touch something in a small way or feel it in a minute way doesn't prevent me from worshiping the majesty of the holy God who reveals himself to us through Jesus Christ. All kinds of attempts have been made through the years to explain the Trinity. The great patron saint of Ireland, Patrick, said, well, the Trinity's like the clover, the, the four-leaf clover, but imagine three leaves on it. One clover with three leaves. It implies kind of three different gods. Not a bad attempt, but not perfect. Others have said it's like a spring, a fount, and a stream of water. Three different kinds from where the water comes, but the water is of one essence. That's better, but still not perfect. Others say it's like a three links on a chain. They're all connected, but all the links look alike. Others have suggested it's like a rainbow, multicolors, but all come from the same sunbeam. Others have said it's like an apple. You have the core, the peel, and the seeds. One apple with three different substances as a part of it every attempt though fails miserably it doesn't capture it totally because it can't it's a mystery in the heart of God physicists for example look at light light's characteristics first of all are waves but also physicists understand that light's characteristics are also essentially something else and they know that the two seemingly contradict one another. And some people say that on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, physicists teach that light is energy. And on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, others teach that light are waves. And on Sunday, they worship the Lord. Two apparent contradictions that every notable PhD physicist will say today just doesn't make sense. That light is energy and waves at the same time. But they still practice physics, though it's not explainable. The Trinity is a mystery. It's not a contradiction from God's perspective, even though from ours we may not understand it. Final question. Why then is the Trinity important? And it's simply for this reason. You can't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ unless you understand the Trinity. You can't understand the cradle unless you understand the Trinity. You can't understand the cross unless you understand the Trinity. You can't understand the resurrection unless you understand the Trinity. You can't understand the ascension unless you understand the Trinity. You can't understand the second coming of Jesus unless you understand the Trinity. It's essential for our faith. So let's try to understand the Trinity in greater detail. Let's start today with the Father, the first person of the Godhead, the Father. Now, now you need to know at this point, when I intersect with secular atheists, and, and I love to, I, I love to dialogue with them, I love to talk with them, I'm respectful, I build a friendship with them, and we have great dialogues together. Here's what they say, David, I'm more respectful of the Jewish God or the Muslim God. At least that makes sense. God is one, Deuteronomy 6, 4. The Muslims, Allah is one. But you Christians, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with one God, I just don't get it. It's easier to accept the God of Judaism or the God of Islam. And here's how I always respond. Well, if you say that, you need to know, first of all, 
that the idea of the Father is throughout the Scripture. First of all, in the Old Testament, there's Isaiah 64, 8. Would you all read this with me? But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter, we are all the work of your hand. So the idea of God being a Father is in the Old Testament. Other places it says God created Israel as his son, father-son idea there, but it's not often talked about. What I say to the secular atheist is, but in the words of Jesus, God has talked about his father over and over again. Matthew 6, 8, from the words of Jesus. Read this with me. Do not be like them. That's the Pharisees who pretend to be religious, but they're really not. Do not be like them for your, what? Father knows what you need before you ask him. Isn't that a great prayer verse? For some of you say, oh, I just didn't pray long enough. I didn't pray hard enough, and that's why God didn't give me the answer. God knew what you needed before any word was uttered from your lips. God knew your need in your heart before you ever spoke it because he's a father in heaven. Matthew 7, 11, Jesus said, if you then who are evil, keep that in mind, for we're evil. Every single one of us because of sin is selfish, seeking our own way, If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, read the rest with me. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? What a wonderful understanding of God in heaven. Jesus said, hey, you daddies out there who are basically selfish, you want the world to revolve around you. But when your kids come to you and ask you for something for Christmas, your heart's moved. And you do anything and everything to give your children what they desire. Now, if you earthly fathers want to give good gifts to your children and you're basically selfish, how much more the Father in heaven who's perfect love wants to give good gifts to you who are his children? And in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before Jesus faced the cross, he said these words. And he said, read it with me, Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And now what's Jesus experiencing in the garden? He's realizing that as the perfect God-man who lived the life we could not live, who goes to the cross to take our sins upon himself, he knew at that moment that his life could no longer be inseparable with the Father. He knew that when he took sin upon himself, our sin, that he would be separated from the Father. In the thought of not having a union life with his loving daddy in heaven, that's what the term Abba means. It's an Aramaic colloquialism, which means daddy. When a kid in Jesus' day would see his father after a long day's work, he'd call him not father, but Abba, daddy. He cried out, daddy, isn't there another way? Isn't there another way than that moment when I have to be separated from you? And of course, the father said to him, no, son, this is my will for you and for all people everywhere to receive my grace and forgiveness. And Jesus submitted. But he called God daddy. God the father. Now, now for some of you, I need to take a moment and give a parenthesis in the message. For some of you, this is a hard teaching. For some of you, you had bad earthly dads who didn't care for you, didn't love you. Some were even abusive. Some of you saw your dad beat up your mom. Some of you saw your dad leave your mom. And you're saying, man, if my daddy in heaven is a reflection of the daddy in heaven 
If my daddy on earth is a reflection of the daddy in heaven, I don't want anything to do with him. I get it. I understand it. You see, I had a great earthly dad who loved my mom 63 years, even when she had Alzheimer's in the last 10 years of her life. I had a dad who loved me. He, he was there for me. And so I had that kind of earthly dad who reflected an image of the heavenly daddy. That's God's will, dads. Can I take just a moment and speak to you? That's God's will, that you be the first line of offense for your children to see the love of the heavenly daddy through you. Amen. And that means that you not only just give them presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S, you give them your greatest gift, your presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. For I've said it once and I'll say it over and over again. How do kids spell love? T-I-M-E. They spell love by you being with them. Be committed to your wives, guys. I dare you. Stay committed. Love your wives, even if it gets tough, especially if it gets tough. And give your kids an image of what it means for the father to be committed to us. And love your wives. And love your kids. That's what God desired for earthly dads to be. And that's why Jesus chose that image of God the Father. But you need to know God the Father in heaven, God the Daddy in heaven is perfect love. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 and 6. Read it with me. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So the Bible teaches that God's major characteristic is love. Now, now, back to my secular atheist friends. They say, <laughs> we have trouble believing in you being one God in three persons. That seems polytheistic to us. And I always say, well, he's a daddy, he's a father, but this father's also perfect love. And that's essential for understanding the Trinity. Here's my point, I say to them. Love demands an object, doesn't it? Love demands an object. I've been married to my wife for 36 years. She's the love of my life. But my love can't exist unless there's an object of my love. In the Islamic faith, there are 99 characteristics of God listed in the Quran. Not one of them is father, and not one of them is love. Why? Because love demands an object. And the Quran teaches that God, Allah, is all-sufficient. He doesn't need anyone else. So therefore, love can't be his primary characteristic. What is? Power. He's the all-powerful one. Allah Akbar, he's the great one. And love couldn't exist in his heart until he created humanity. Because love demands an object as opposed to the Christian faith, which believes that there's one God in three persons, and among those three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equal in the Godhead, what existed before this world was ever created was their perfect love for one another. They just loved one another perfectly, selfishly, selflessly, giving themselves to one another wholly. How many of you have ever asked the question, why was I ever created? 
Come on, raise your hand if you've ever asked that question. The rest of you, raise your hands, liar, liar, pants on fire. I mean, all of us, if you're honest and you're breathing, you've asked the question, why was I created? Let me tell you why you were created. It's found in the heart of the Trinity. You were created so that God could share his love with you. He loved so much in the Trinity, he wanted to create others who could enter into that perfect triune love. You were created to love and to be loved. He started with Adam and Eve. They loved one another. He walked with them in the garden. Then he wanted to create a whole world of millions, of billions of people invited into his love. And the more people he created was because he wanted to love even more. Now, let me give you an illustration that might help you understand that. A couple of weeks ago, Marilyn and I had one of the greatest gifts we could have given to us. That was the birth of our third grandchild, Emily Joy. Would you like to see a picture? Yeah. Let's just keep that up there for about 30 minutes, okay? <laughs> wow. She's beautiful, isn't she? Yeah. Th their third, our third grandchild. You know what was interesting? Bethany went into labor and only had a few hours of labor and delivery. But, you know, for all of you gals who've given birth to a child, you know that God's greatest gift to humankind is an epidural, okay? <laughs> and it's tough. It's painful. It's hard. You know what's interesting? That after Emily Joy was born... Marilyn was with her in the hospital. I unfortunately was out of town, and, and she said, uh, Bethany, what are you feeling? She was holding Emily Joy in her arms. Here was the first words that came out of her mouth. I want another one. <laughs> no kidding. She said, I want another one. Why? She said, because I've got so much love in my heart for these kids, I just want a bunch of them. That's the father. He wanted to create more and more and more and more because of his love in his heart. You were created to love and to be loved by the Father in heaven. Now, of course, in Genesis 3, we read about an evil one coming and tempting Adam and Eve and their perfect love toward one another and toward God being broken apart, sin coming into this world. In the Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, there's this phrase, for as the curse is found, everything's been cursed in creation. Creation itself, our hearts, our ability to love. Now, selfless love has been turned into selfishness. And we want the world to revolve around us. We're no longer connected in that perfect love relationship with God. <laughs> when I think about that love that God had among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I think of two illustrations. One's in Dublin, Ireland, where someone was born, there were two people, but they were connected. And the parents had to make the agonizing decision whether to try to disconnect them so that both could live apart or keep them connected. They finally decided through doctor's advice to try to disconnect them. One lived and one died. You know why the one died? Because the common heart they were sharing could not be shared. What connected the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was the common heart of love. You take that away and, and one can't live. I think two of an elderly couple recently in Nebraska that were in an automobile accident. They both were taken to the hospital. They were rolled in on gurneys. The wife was a little stronger than the husband, but when they were in the gurneys, they both took each other's hand. And even though the husband was on death's door, as long as he held his wife's hand, his wife of 75 years, his heart beat. 
The moment the doctors forced that hand to let go, he died. Interestingly, his wife, whom they thought would make it, an hour later, died. When you disconnect the heart of love, it doesn't work. And we were disconnected from the heart of love from God because of sin and rebellion, because of the curse. Now, here's God's dilemma, folks. God is perfect love. We just saw that. But God is also perfectly holy. The only adjective that's used in triplicate three times to describe God is Isaiah 6, where the angels of heaven are worshiping him and call him holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So here's God's deal. Because of his holiness, he's offended by our rebellion. And his justice demands that he punish our sin. The wrath of God should be poured out on us because of our rebellion against him, our selfishness, our denying of his love. But he's also perfect love. So what does God do? What does the Father do who's perfect love and perfect holy? Here's what he does. One day he turns to his son who existed with him in all eternity. And in their perfect love relationship, he turned to his son and said, Would you go? Would you go into a cradle and put on human flesh? And would you live the perfect life they're incapable of living because of the curse? And then go to a cross and allow me to pour out all of my wrath, all my punishment upon you and not them. And then I can offer them forgiveness by grace through faith, not of their works. You've done it all for them. Would you do that? And in Philippians 2 language, listen to this word from Paul. He says, and Jesus, who did not think equality with God was something to be grasped. He didn't think power was something to be grasped. All of us grasp for power. He didn't think equality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself in obedience to God, putting on human flesh, taking on the role of a servant, and dying in our place. So that if we now receive Jesus, our sins are forgiven, and we're born again, the Holy Spirit lives in our hearts, and we're reconnected to the Father, folks. We're reconnected to his love, and we're to live in perfect love. All of your depression, all of your marriage problems, all of your discouragements are rooted somehow in the fact you don't believe in the perfect love of God who lives in your hearts. And I believe every single problem in your life could be solved if you would begin to believe the Father loves you powerfully and significantly. The proof is the cradle and the cross. It is. You can give God the glory for that. That is so true. That is the heart of the gospel. A young woman went to a pastor I know and said to him, you know, I've come to receive Jesus, but I still feel so much depression. And he went through the whole thing. Don't you understand? You're now a child of God. You're adopted into the Father's family. You're deeply loved by him. You're an heir of everything he owns. And she listened to all of those facts that the Bible teaches when you're born again and what you receive in Jesus. But she looked at him and said, you know what? But that doesn't make any difference if guys don't think I'm attractive. She didn't get it. If you know how much God loves you, the things of this earth grow strangely dim. The Father's love. John 17, verses 24 through 26. Let me read these words to you. Father, Jesus' words right before he went to the cross. I desire that they, who's the they there? It's the, the disciples, but who else is it? Who else is it? It's us. It's us. This word's for us. I desire that they whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before. When, guys? 
before the world was ever created, the Father and the Son perfectly loved each other. Oh, righteous, what? Father, Daddy, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the what? The love with which you have loved me may be what? In them. And I in them. That I came to put your love, Father, back in their hearts. And that means you can now love your spouse who's just absolutely driven you crazy. Because that's the way Jesus has loved you. Because you drove Jesus crazy. Now you can love your boss. That irascible boss who drives you crazy. Why? Because God has loved you. And you drove God crazy. And yet he still loves you. You can now love your enemies, Jesus said. And you can forgive them. Why? Because you were once an enemy of the Father. You were a rebel and a traitor against the Father. And yet he still came. The proof of his love is the cradle. He came. Then look at Romans 5, 5 with me. Paul writes this, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's what? Love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, the Father's love through the Son forgives us of our sins, and now the very presence of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, indwells us. The perfect love of the Father indwells us. And now we become love machines. And we don't work for nobody but God, (laughs) the Father in heaven. Now, Christmas began in the Father's heart of love. Let me read to you Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 19 that I referred to earlier. And look at the Trinity here. For this reason, Paul said, I bow my knees before the Father. There it is, the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. So you have Father's spirit in your inner being, in your heart, so that who? Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You, you receive Christ through faith. So you have the Father, the Spirit, and Christ One God, three persons here, no mention of the Trinity, but one God, three persons, clearly outlined here, but so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, now read this with me, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the uh, saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. Read it with me. And to know the love of the fullness of God. Of the fullness of God. I pray that love will be yours today. The selfless love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it all begins by understanding that the Father is love. Would you please stand? And would you read with me 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, which will lead into a prayer time and then to our final singing and worship to the Lord. Read this with me. See what kind of love 
the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are.